You know, I was um, looking this week, um, reading, doing a lot of reading and making some notes, and I want to start off uh, with this passage from Genesis. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. And then this is the, the phrase that really got to me. At that time, people began to call on the name of the Lord. The first uh, mention of prayer in the Bible. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the people that have come here. We thank you for the mercy and grace that you've provided in your son, Jesus. I pray you'll enable me to uh, pass on your truth, proclaim it correctly. I pray that we're all worthy of the grace that you've bestowed on us because we need more of you, Lord. Pray for the joy of your truth, too. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, today I want to talk about the content of challenging prayer. By now, I think uh, most of us can admit that we've had challenges in our prayer life, you know, just taking it to the Lord in prayer about the mundane things uh, that occur daily in our lives, let alone how to approach God with the big challenges uh, that we need to confront in our lives. You know, go it alone or go with God. So last week when I was putting together the lesson, lesson plan, it, it disappeared on my computer. 20 pages. And even though I'd been saving it as I typed, and to say that I was really irritated is uh, probably not the word I would use to describe uh, my reaction. So I called the expert, my wife. And she says, uh, the first thing she said was to ask if I prayed about it. No. You know, should I take every little thing to God? Doesn't he have bigger issues to deal with after all? Um, I'm the one who lost it. It's not spiritual. Uh, it's, it's not going to come back like magic. That's what I was thinking to myself. So, you know, a couple of years ago after church, this is another example. We were having lunch uh, down at Rubio's, and I realized at one point that I didn't have my ring on anymore, my wedding ring. I lost it, and it again. Same thing. Anne prayed, and I steamed because I felt responsible. You know, I ended up finding we, we went through the trash at Rubio's and every place we'd been. And she says, well, maybe it's up at church. And I thought, oh, man, this is, we're just not going to find it. And um, came up here, went through the trash again. And what had happened is it came, it come off my finger when I was drying my hands on a paper towel. So I, I had the trash out by the dumpster, and I'm dumping everything. And all of a sudden, I hear this clunk. It's my ring. And prayed. Like I said, I steam. Um, and, you know, and as I was writing this, I lost the lesson again. Except this time I didn't steam. I, uh, I started retyping. I found a rough copy that I had, and I, and I prayed. So, our, you know, our prayers, or, or lack of prayer, it reveals what we believe about God and what we truly value and, de and desire. If you were given a record of every petition that you made over the last week, what prayer would be rendered as the most frequent? You know, health, 
safe travel, children, material needs, they're all appropriate. How often do we pray that God's name is hallowed? His kingdom, believers in challenging places like Ukraine right now, uh, that's the obvious one. Uh, walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. When we face distress in our immediate lives, do we still pray for other people or, or does our distress become the priority of our praying? In, in this session, we're going to start by considering Paul's gospel-centered prayers for new believers, that they'll know God, uh, that they might live uh, a transformed life that, that glorifies God. So we're going to watch a video, and uh, D.A. Carson uses Colossians 1, 3 to 14. But before we watch, I want to make some comments that, that he's going to emphasize. We previously noted that Paul prays regularly and often with thanks, that he can bear fruit, and that he's strengthened and worthy. That's also what he prays for the churches he writes to. They begin to that they begin to demonstrate God's given evidence of an ongoing spiritual transformation in Jesus. Uh, that they will have an increasing knowledge of God, and that he links God's revealed will because that knowledge destroys spiritual uh, strongholds of darkness. And it's, it's the power of God. The power of God to salvation for all who believe. You know, God knew that our most profound problem was our sin, our rebellion, our estrangement from him. So he sent Jesus to save his people from, his, from their sins. You know, he didn't send a policeman. He didn't send a professor or an economist or a movie star or a doctor. He didn't send Tom Brady, the goat. Because what we needed was a savior. You know, at MCRD, I illustrate this point. And remember, MCRD stands for Marine Corps Recruit Depot. So I illustrate this point with a, a real event from uh, Vietnam. I had a friend. We went to high school. I went to, I went to Kearney High School over here. I grew up in this neighborhood. I was the newspaper boy here. Um, so his name was Terry, and he was the quarterback on our high school football team. And then we were fraternity brothers at San Diego State. So Terry got drafted in 1966, and a year later he was at a big battle in the Central Highlands at a place called Docto in November of 67. And his company was surrounded, and they decided to pull back about 50 yards to regroup, and they left one guy behind who was wounded. And that person was Terry's friend. He, and he's the one that related this to me. He told me about this. Um, that man couldn't move. He couldn't save himself. So, because he was Terry's friend, Terry jumped up, ran the 50 yards, threw him over his shoulder, and brought him back. Brought him back to safety. That's what Jesus did for us. And I'm sure you know where I'm going with this story, because it's our story. We're unable to save ourselves. We can't move. And Jesus steps out of eternity, the Son of God, on the greatest search and rescue mission of all existence. And the cost was his life for ours. You know, whenever I, I talk about this story, I can't help thinking of the hymn before the throne. It really humbles me. Because a sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free, and God the just is satisfied to look at him and pardon me. So back to Paul. 
in the Colossian church. Paul, you know, he never met the Colossians, uh, so he writes to them from prison in Rome around 62 AD. What we'll see is that his concern for them is their response to the word of truth, the word then and now. You know, are they going to be undermined or are they going to establish themselves uh, in the truth of Christ's supremacy and sufficiency for, for all life? You know, this can cause some uncertainty uh, of Christ being our all in all in the minds and hearts, especially of unsuspecting believers or new believers. And Paul always has a heart for the churches he establishes or for the ones that were established by some of his um, disciples, I guess would be the word to use. That leads to, if they don't get there, it leads to doubts about God's sovereignty, about their salvation. They despair when life seems confusing and, and you know, the outright destruction of the foundations of their faith. And in case that hasn't been emphasized yet, here he recounts, he reorients them back to the gospel and its power. Again, we get a glimpse of Paul's concern for new believers, for his love for those in Christ as he waits to be martyred. It's an exclamation point to what he has proclaimed and revealed and has been revealed to him directly by Jesus, you know, beginning on a road to Damascus. In Galatians uh, 1, 8, 9, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accused, accursed, I'm sorry, accursed. I didn't want to use my glasses today, so I, I made the print bigger on the uh, presentation so I could read it without the glasses. Um, as we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. You know, we have a video to watch most of the video covers uh, points about challenging prayers for those who don't know, and especially those who don't know in other countries, those we don't know. But um, when we return, I want to go on to another type of challenge that has to do with the excuses we make for not praying. So what I'm going to ask, I'm going to ask Mark if he could pass out some three-by-five cards, and without putting your name on them, just uh, while you're watching the, the video, Write down um, what you find challenging about prayer. I'll give you an example. Uh, I kind of took a survey of uh, some people that I know, my small group, and one of the answers I got was that uh, they find it challenging to pray for people they don't like. Okay? So I just wanted to get an idea, and, and hopefully I'll have time at the end to go over some of these. You know, what about people who frustrate you? Same thing. So, can we play the video now? Christians often pray for people they've never met, especially if they pray for people in other parts of the world. In this fourth session, studying a prayer from Colossians chapter 1, we find the Apostle Paul praying for people he has never met, and his example is stunning. Sometimes, of course, when we suffer ourselves, our horizons shrink. It's hard to look beyond our own suffering if we have advancing cancer, for example, 
or we're imprisoned because of persecution or the like, then our horizons shrink and we focus ever more narrowly on ourselves. Then when God frees us with uh, healing or gets us out of prison or the like, then our horizons expand again. All of that is pretty common and is sometimes reflected in the Psalms. But in this passage in Colossians chapter 1, what is stunning is that Paul, though he is writing from prison himself, and you would think that that would narrow his vision just a wee bit. Instead, he is using his time in prison to pray for others, including some people whom he has never met. Paul did not found the church in the city of Colossae. Paul ministered in that region, especially in Ephesus, for about two and a half years. And from Ephesus, the gospel rang out, in this case, through a man called Epaphras, and the Colossian church was established, a kind of daughter church to a church where Paul served. But although Paul has never met these believers in Colossae, he is using his time in prison in part to pray for them. And, and he is so projected his heart toward them that he, he eagerly gathers reports on what's going on in their lives and, and prays for them. In particular, he mentions the faith, hope, and love that they have displayed. These three terms are sometimes referred to as the Pauline triad. Did you notice the text? We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all of God's people the faith and love that spring from the hope stored up in heaven and about which you have already heard in the true message of the gospel. In other words, these are gospel virtues, and these three, or sometimes two at a time, show up in Paul's understanding of the, the outflow of the gospel, faith, hope, and love. In fact, uh, most Christians have heard of these through the last verse of 1 Corinthians chapter 13, when everything else falls away, the three that remain are faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these is love. So Paul has heard that these Colossian believers have demonstrated great faith in Christ Jesus and love for one another, and all of this grounded in a vision of the end, this hope of what is coming at the end of time. And in consequence, they have ordered their lives very differently. Because Paul has heard all of this, he has thanked God for them. He has not stopped praying for them uh, because, in fact, they've responded gloriously to the gospel of Christ Jesus. And all of this while Paul is himself languishing in prison. So then, what does he pray for them for concretely? Well, here the language is a bit different from what we've seen elsewhere, and yet, and yet somehow the text runs in a similar sort of direction. In verses 9 and following, for this reason, that is, for the reasons of the gospel's powerful transformation in their lives, for this reason, since the day we heard about you, he got the reports, he hasn't been there, we have not stopped praying for you. And what in particular does he pray for? To a church that is demonstrating faith, hope, and love, that is responding well to the gospel, what does he pray for them for? Or, to put it in updated terms, what do you pray most for your church? 
or for the churches that you know around you, or better yet, for churches in other parts of the world where you don't know any of the believers. You've merely heard reports. You hear about a church that is growing fruitfully in Central Europe or in parts of Africa or in Latin America or the church in China or, or, or whatever. What do you pray for these people? You might hear reports of their faith and their love, their ability to live in the light of eternity, their hope, their anticipation of the end. What now do you pray for these people whom you yourself have not yet met? What do you pray for your own church? This is what Paul prays. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way. And then that's teased out what that looks like in the following verses. Now, sometimes today when people talk about knowing the will of God, what they really want is sort of a vocational guidance. Shall I become this or that? Shall I live in this city or that city? Shall I take this job or that job? Shall I marry this person or that person? What they want is vocational guidance. What's the will of God for my life? And there's no doubt that God's sovereignty extends to all of the details of our lives. Not a, a sparrow falls to the ground without God's sanction and every hair on our head is, is numbered, then God is certainly concerned about such matters. But what is characteristic about Paul's mention of praying with respect to the will of God is how regularly that's tied to, here it is again, sanctification. Paul can say, for this is the will of God for you, even your sanctification. Here, the will of God is quite transparent. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way. In other words, the will of God here is what he wants for us to make us holy. And it takes the work of the Spirit in our minds and hearts so to transform us. Where will we find this will of God? Do we not find this will of God, first of all, supremely, spectacularly, in this book? It means that God will fill your mind with Holy Scripture, with what he has revealed, so that we know the mind and heart of God, and not in some narrowly academic sense. I, I have some fellow guild members of the community of New Testament scholars who are in fact practicing atheists, but who are technically very fine scholars. Now, that's not enough to know the will of God in that sense, but to know it so empowered by the Spirit of God that we may discern what the mind of God is. Do you hear this language? We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will. That is deepening their knowledge of God's mind thinking God's thoughts after him, what he wants. Where else will you find that but supremely in God's most holy word, manifested supremely in Christ Jesus himself? Through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives, so we seek the illumination of the Spirit, deep understanding, so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way, and then that's fleshed out bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, 
strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, so that you might have great endurance and patience, giving joyful thanks to the Father. Do you see all the kinds of themes that we've seen again and again and again? Thinking God's thoughts after him being so transformed that in lives full of characteristic thanksgiving to God, we delight to say, your will be done, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Here I am, make of me what you want. Make me as holy as pardoned sinners can be this side of the consummation. That's what Paul prays for believers he has never met, believers he will not meet until glory, believers of whom he's heard good reports. That's what he prays for them, and that's what we should be praying for our brothers and sisters in congregations all over the world whom we have not yet I couldn't have said it better, so I won't. <laughs> can, I, uh, can I get those three by five cards that, uh, for anybody that filled one out? I'll, I'll look at them kind of as I go along here. You know, now I want to kind of take a little turn. We're still, I still want to talk about challenges to prayer, and I want to look at six challenges that Christians have in their praying. And I'll give you these six first of all before I go on. I'm too busy to pray. I'm too dry spiritually to pray. I don't feel like I need to pray. I'm too bitter to pray. I'm too ashamed to pray. I'm content with mediocrity in my prayer habits. Thank you. You know, it's interesting to me that I know I have a number of friends. Uh, I don't think they're Christians, uh, but they make a point of praying every day. And I've asked them about that. And, and here's the thing. They believe in God, but they don't recognize any need for Jesus in their life or any need for forgiveness. You know, I ask them, well, what, what God do you pray to? And, and the usual answer I get has to do with... Uh, the, you know, the God that created everything. So, you know, that's a positive. But that's as far as they're willing to believe. Or I hear, you know, Pete, I, I really respect what you believe. You really have this religious bent to your life. And the subtext to me there is, I don't want to talk about this anymore. And, you, you know, in some respect, I think they even pray more than I do, to tell you the truth. Um, on social media, which we probably most of us are involved in it in one way or another. But I see requests for prayer in the comment sections. I always read the comment sections uh, of articles. And my, fav my favorite one when somebody asks for prayer is, I'm sending you good feelings. Have you seen those? You know, good vibes, yeah. Or I'm sending you prayer. I, I always wonder, well, what does that mean, I'm sending you prayer? I mean, okay. But it seems to me they're prayer warriors for nothing. They appear spiritual, but they've never been able to arrive at a knowledge of truth. And he was just talking about that. The Spirit, Holy Spirit gives us a knowledge of truth. So, you know, let's reflect on these uh, challenges one by one, uh, you know, as we advance to um, justify our relative lack of prayer and what Scripture says about that. 
you know, I'll talk about my own. I, I was, while I was writing this, I was thinking, you know, what, what's my challenge? And I kind of think my challenge is a, not taking the, you know, the small things to God. Not being, well, he, he's not going to pay attention to that. You know, I'm, I'm responsible. Something I did. I got to work this out myself. But the first one I want to look at is I'm too busy. So, you know, we live in a frenetic world, and it's, it's not very contemplative these days, I don't think, at, at least here in the United States. We seldom take time to meditate or wonder or to analyze or, prayer, or pray. You know, we're busy pressing on to the next item on our agenda. We don't stop to refuel. You know, while, while I was living in Oregon back in the, in the 80s, I decided I, I'll go back to school. I'm bored. I, I need something to do. So I, I took a statistics class and a marketing class. I took the statistics class because I was still upset. I took statistics when I was an undergraduate, and I got a D in it. And the main reason was the professor was from Thailand. I couldn't understand the thing he was talking about. Took the statistic class again, I got an A in it. So I either got smarter over the next uh, 25 years or I just missed it the first time. But, you know, one of the points I want to talk about in the first marketing class I took was that people had to deal... This, now, this is 19... Uh, they're talking about 1975, and I'm taking this class in 1985. That people have to deal in 1975 with 5,000 messages a day. And that could be anything from uh, an advertising on a bus bench or hi, how are you, uh, TV, a dialogue between people in meetings. By 1985, 10 years later, the messages had doubled to 10,000 a day. And it, supposedly it doubles every 10 years. No, no telling where it is now, 40 years later. Um, especially with social media and pop-up ads. And there's still, you know, bus bench advertising for real estate sales. Um, but I, I remember thinking it backwards. Well, what was it in 1965 or 1955 or 1945 or 1805? You know, I imagine a man back in 1805, he's in a pasture at the plow, and that morning maybe he said good morning to his wife, coffee's good, thanks for breakfast, better get to it. So you've got four statements, four responses, eight messages. Or maybe a postal writer came by later and found him out in the field. You know, they uh, took some time to chat, not very long, a few more messages. I, I, I was guessing maybe... At the most, maybe 200 a day, you know. But he, while he was out there, he had time to contemplate, time to analyze. Um, I look at Lincoln reading by candlelight at night, contemplating all that he read. You know, but we don't have that luxury. We know praying is of utmost importance. It's just that we have an overburdened calendar. And it ensures uh, that we don't pay attention or give attention to what, what we need. What's, and what's God's response? He says in Luke 10, 40, I'm going to, you know, I'm sure you're all familiar with this. But Martha was distracted with much serving, and she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you're anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion which will not be taken away from her. You know, Paul mentions this. I'm, I'm not going to get into this 
totally here. But he says, even couples become so active that they're too tired, they barely have time for each other, let alone to pray together. So let me suggest, if you're too busy to pray, you're too busy. You need to cut something out. Um, number two, I feel too dry spiritually. You know, we set aside time to pray only to find we're discouraged, we're too unbelieving, uh, that prayer's even going to make a difference, we're too empty, or I'll wait till I feel like it, you know, when I'm in the mood. It's like having a headache but not taking aspirin for it. You know, there's a couple suppositions that are hiding here, though. There's, you know, the acceptability of my approach to prayer depends on how I feel. Is God impressed with our only praying and joy? What about Christ's mediating work on our behalf? Isn't that what we mean by ending in Jesus' name? Doesn't this attitude cast kind of a slur on the cross when we act as if the acceptability of our prayers depends on how we feel? When we feel dispirited, we, we may have to remind ourselves that the reason God accepts us is the grace that he's bestowed on us by the person of his son. And then, you know, also behind this attitude is that my obligation is somehow diminished when I don't feel like praying. My mood gives me the right to determine my prayer habits. It's, it's self-centered. It means that I and I alone determine my duty and obligation. You know, in short, I'm my own God, small God. And what does God say here in Romans 12, 12? Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. That's a good homework verse, short, easy to remember. Remember the parable of the persistent widow in Luke 18? In that parable, the evil judge responds to her persistence. How much more will a righteous God respond to persistence? You know, Jesus told this parable to show his disciples they should always pray and not give up, not give in. The real question, though, isn't whether God will answer prayers, but whether we have faith to persevere. And the passage ends in, in 7, 8, chapter 18. I think we're going to put it up here, yeah. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? To use how we feel as an excuse is to admit we don't exercise the kind of faith that perseveres. There's an implicit assumption that God may not answer immediately or even the way we want. He's not an automatum, you know, God insists that we learn not to hide behind our feelings or, or the dryness that we have or chronic unbelief or lapses in discouragement. He wants us to learn to trust him, to learn to persevere in prayer. So number three, I, got, I feel no need to pray. I can't imagine that there's anyone here that is so crass to reason that I'm too important to pray or I'm too self-confident to pray. What happens is that we affirm in the abstract the importance of prayer and treat it only as important in the lives of other people, especially those that we may deem weaker or more needy or less competent or less productive. My self-confidence is reinforced and it breeds prayerlessness. If you shelter under such... Uh, self-confidence and don't learn better ways by uh, listening to Scripture, you may be addressed by tragedy. We see that all through the, through the Bible. You know, when 
Israel got puffed up. You can see it, uh, that they diluted any thought of needing God's direction. And, you know, we should note that God's kindness is what chastises us. He wants to bring us back to him. Jonah's an example. Or look at this example of Joshua negotiate, negotiating with the Gibeonites, how Israel was tricked into coming to a detente with God's enemies. In Joshua 9.4, so the men took some of their provisions but did not ask counsel from the Lord. They needed to pray. What a damning uh, indictment. Yet, isn't that true of us so often too? We love our independence, even if the result is stumbling and falling. You know, the old adage, pride goes before a fall. It couldn't be any more true uh, than in the encounter that Hezekiah had with the Babylonian envoys in Second Chronicles. We read in chapter 32, And so in the matter of the envoys of the princes of Babylon who had been sent to him to inquire about the sign that had been done in the land, God left him to himself in order to test him and to know all that was in his heart. And you know what? Hezekiah didn't have, the, have to pay the price. I, when I read it, I think, well, he was just kind of glad that he was still going to be around, but he kicked the can down the road. And there were people later on that did have to pay the price, and they were taken into captivity in Babylon. So um, number, uh, number four, I'm too bitter to pray. We're often going to be faced with injustice of some sort, some chronic lack of fairness. I, I think, you know, I've noticed a lot of people praying and a lot of comments about what's going on in Ukraine right now. I think that's a, a good example of people feeling that there's injustice involved, that it's not fair, that somebody who's more powerful is uh, imposing their, their will on another country. It kind of reminds me, I, I don't know if you ever went, went through this when you were young. I, I can remember in, um, when I went to junior high school, one of the things that used to happen on the bus right out here is a, um, the older kids used to find a pea, what we were called pea greens when I was in uh, seventh grade, and they'd smear them with their lipstick. You know, that's unfair. That's unfair. Sometimes we accept all this as just part of living in a, in a fallen world, but, you know, when it's against us personally, I think we're probably less philosophical about it. We may nurture a spirit of revenge and malice, bitterness. You know, those are all sins that turn us from soul-exposing prayer to formulaic prayers. And, and finally, to no prayer. It's, it's much harder to pray uh, with compassion for someone uh, when someone that we harbor resentment towards you know, when we have this feelings, these feelings going on. We, we know the prayer the Lord gave the disciples ends thus in Matthew 6. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive you your trespasses. You know, we know we need forgiveness, so how can we withhold it from someone else? You know, if we do, it's, it's cheap religion. You know, in Ephesians 4, Paul writes, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. You know, Christ 
took on our guilt on a Roman cross. We all know that. So what conceivable right do we have to ignore the grace that we've received by being unforgiving? Number five, I'm too ashamed to pray. Remember the response of Adam to God after he had disobeyed God's one, pro, one prohibition, not ten, one. In Genesis 3, 8 to 10, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. You know, shame encourages, encourages us to hide from the presence of God. It fosters escapism. It causes us not to, uh, to be honest with our prayers, and, it, and it, again, it engenders prayerlessness. You know, what was God's response? God sought Adam and Eve, and he dealt with their sin. Besides, how can you hide from God? He's the only audience for our thoughts. And his thoughts are on us. In, Psalm, in Proverbs 5.21, for man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord and he ponders all his paths. God ponders our paths. I like that. And in Hebrews 4, verse 13, it says, and no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Kind of futile to to try and avoid reckoning with God. Instead, we should use the shame to drive us to the only person who, ha- who can forgive us and grant us utter absolution. Number six, I'm content with mediocrity. Really? Anyone here content with mediocrity? I, I kind of doubt it. I don't expect to see any hands raised. Some Christians want just enough of Christ to be identified with him, but not enough to be seriously inconvenienced. You know, they cling to the orthodoxy of the church, but they shy away from serious Bible study. They fret over the quality of a sermon, but not the quality of their own prayer life. They value God's moral commands, but they aren't engaged in a war against inner corruption. They take five from sanctification. I think most of us, you know, begin to worry when we feel sanctification has taken five from us. I, f- I find that there's no peace beyond understanding, and I'm, you know, that's not something that is very, uh, gives me very much content. But, you know, if I were to lose that ongoing sanctification, I definitely would be. You know, we know the Holy Spirit's at work in us, and personally, I want that. And I want it because it's been promised to me. It's been promised to you too. We find ourselves with our feet in two different, I like to kind of imagine it's two different pastures. You know, one is the world, and it's a pasture that's full of thorns and weeds. And the other has freesias and lavender and stargazer lilies. Smells great, looks great. But you know, I was thinking the reason we still have a foot in the weeds is probably that there are things we don't want to give up. Just guessing from experience. What does God say in James 4, 5 through, 4 through 5? You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose 
It is to no purpose that the scripture says, he yearns jealously over the spirit that he's made to dwell in us. I certainly don't want to become an enemy of God. And then on verse 7, it goes on to say, Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. And then verse 10, Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. You know, from, from time to time, all of us need to apply what we're learning here in our lives. Um, challenging prayers. I have a list from some of the people that I, I talked to before I came here, but, but let, me, let me see what's on these cards. I'll go through this real, real uh, quick, the ones that I have. Praying for people I don't like, praying for people that frustrate me, patience, uh, greedy rulers and people, praying for myself. I feel guilty praying for myself. That was one of the things I, I talked about here. Staying focused in my prayers, uh, having a consistent daily prayer routine, that I should be praying for Ukraine and world events. Uh, one person said they were having a challenge because they were asking God to kill Putin. And you know, I'm, I'm, I don't want to get into this now, but you know, there were prayers of imprecation. David's, David's probably the best example of that. So I don't know, you know, praying against evil Myself, praying for small things. So let me, let me look at some of these cards here. Challenging prayer is forgetfulness to pray for the church universal and thanksgiving for gospel virtues. Lack of faith that God will answer and distractions. People who have hurt me deeply, who've said hurtful things about my faith. Got to wonder about their faith. Challenging things about prayer when they are unanswered or when you're angry at someone and have to pray for them. Pray for the will of God. And uh, then in parentheses, afraid of that. Afraid of the will of God. Staying focused, prone to wander during prayer. Sounds like found of many blessings. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Praying more for health, vocation, vocational issues than the kingdom is concerned with. I'm always praying for myself and prayers, and I don't give God the glory that he deserves. My mind wandering as I pray. Yeah, I, I can appreciate that, yeah. And I think I mentioned that in, the, in the, the first lesson we did. Sometimes I'll be praying and you know you're wondering, well, what did I do with my car keys? Or, you know, how could I miss that eight-inch putt? <laughs> Remembering to prioritize prayers and make time to pray as I should. Just getting started. My mind is so busy distracted that I struggle to stop and pray. I often, often give in to the other things um, that can for my attention, that call for my attention. I find that I feel a need to figure things out or fix things. My first instinct is to figure it out myself and forget to pray for help. Yeah, I, I recognize that one in me too. 
Guidance or wisdom, being still. Stop striving. Praying for sanctification, it's difficult because we know it will involve crucifixion of the self. It's challenging to pray when I'm angry. I often find it challenging to pray and to better love and serve those who I find frustrating or routinely behave in a way that is hurtful for me. Praying for the leaders of our country when their words and actions are so contrary to the will of God. Watching, waiting on an answer. You know, I think that's pretty much true for all of us. Same thing. The thing to remember is God has it. Whatever your challenges are, God has it. And as we have uh, talked about, prayer is the language of faith. So let me end here. I'm just a little bit over. I want to end with this verse from uh, 1 Peter. This will be my prayer. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled, sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Heavenly Father, thank you for those people that have attended today. Pray that uh, your truth was proclaimed and, and that we learned something from it. All of us, Lord. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.